I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. Over the past year, we've connected dozens of classic She-Ra episodes to modern progressive issues. But we're not done yet. In this second season of our show, I'm no longer a newbie to Etheria. This year, we're taking a higher level view of the characters and issues that face the Princess of Power. We're as interested as ever in how those issues connect to our current political landscape. So join us as we look back to the 80s and forward to the Netflix reboot of one of our favorite cartoons. This, this is, is She-Ra, Progressive, Progressive of Power. Hey everybody, welcome back to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. This is... Uh, the first episode of season two we're recording, but not the first you're hearing. But boy, it's nice to be back, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to hear us sort of backwards, uh, but hopefully we'll do the big catch up next week, which you'll hear first, dear listeners. It's, it's, it's almost as though time has turned inside out. Oh, boy. Already <laughs> with the episode references. Oh, I'm yeah. so thrilled to be with you. So <laughs> something uh, important happened over the break that we, I think, didn't cover last time slash next time. Uh, and that is that Lauren has been initiated into the uh, He-Man, She-Ra, like, fandom church. Isn't that right? Yes. I now own the He-Man and She-Ra Bible. Uh, it's actually not called the Bible. It is uh, a complete guide to the classic animated adventures by Dark Horse, which I got for Christmas. Uh, but I call it the Bible because this is literally the biggest book that I own. <laughs> it's the biggest book on my shelf in my home. Do you not own the actual Bible? Uh, you don't have to answer that. Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> about that. So uh, I think our listeners might know this already, but I am an atheist. Mm -hmm. But I became an atheist by doing a massive amount of, of, of reading religious texts. And so at one point, in addition to like Seven Taoist Masters and the Tao Te Ching, and uh, I owned uh, probably several Bibles. So there's got to be one in the house somewhere. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's valuable as a piece of literature, even if you don't believe that said, I don't really ever read it for fun. Right. I mean, I had the Quran for a while, and I feel like I probably kept a Bible, if only to have spiteful, well-cited arguments on the internet. Yeah. Like, well, what That's do you good. think about this scripture? I mean, I don't believe in it, but you claim to. Defend yourself. <laughs> so uh, your your series Bible, the Dark Horse book that I've been talking about all of last year, it's uh, super relevant to this episode uh, because this season we're going to be taking more of a kind of top-level look at uh, the She-Ra stuff. Like last year we kind of picked, you know, here's one episode and here's the very specific progressive uh, moral that's in that episode. This year we're going a little wider, right? Like we want to make sure to cover all the big stuff before the Netflix series drops. And today we are talking about morals, which is so important because we made a huge joke of it almost every episode last time about how you did or didn't find Lucky, and then how <laughs> almost always how bad his morals were. Not even bad, but like kind of missed the mark. And so I knew coming back, we have to do the two episodes where Lucky makes an appearance, which is Lucky lends a hand and Lucky sweetie. I would also like to say uh, I consider this a character deep dive as well. We have a couple of favorite characters, and by that I mean one. It's Shadow Weaver. Yeah. There yep. are no other good characters. Characters we talk about all the time loving. And so uh, we're going to center a couple of episodes of our show on characters that may or may not show up in the new one. Yeah. There will probably be a Shadow Weaver, uh, certainly in the Netflix version. I'm not sure about Loki, though. Loki's more of a novelty. Yeah, we should talk about that, whether we think there will be morals like that are that this pointed on. Uh, but 
so Lauren, I, I'm just now bringing this up, but I did all the recaps in season one and I got tired of hearing myself talk. Do you want to recap these episodes before we go into it? I can try to. I certainly didn't take any notes to, <laughs> uh, to, to know that I would be asked to, but maybe that's for the best because I think yeah. if we're going to do multiple episodes, our recaps kind of have to be shorter. Yes, make them punchy. So Lookie lends a hand. In this episode, I think it's actually really simple to summarize. Yes. The Horde uh, apparently has a Horde catalog that you can just order from, Wiley Coyote, J.C. Penny style. And uh, they oh, order... Oh, Amazon Prime. Ooh, <laughs> the voice of our guest. Horde Prime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they order a magical element to power a device that will freeze time. Uh, it is snuck into a supply shipment for the rebels. Glimmer brings it back to the forest and pretty much everyone in a large geographical radius is stuck in time. And that includes all of our heroes, uh, Adora, Bo, everybody. But not Lookie, because Lookie is a creature of magic. And we'll get to, I think, <laughs> how shady that rule is later. But because he's not frozen, he decides to go get He-Man. Uh, Light Hope helps him transition over to Eternia. We bring He-Man back to Etheria, as well as Orko. And uh, together they save the day, which results in uh, some sort of slapstick at the end about time being turned inside out, which apparently is not a very big deal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, or I can still talk regularly. It seems but fine. But the weather is messed up. Things like that happen, I guess. Yeah. Uh, time magic is NBD. Uh, and then Lookie's sweetie. We learn that Lookie is not kind of a one-off. He actually has a race of people called the Con Seals. Hey. <laughs> the names in this episode are really bad, by yes. the way. But we'll talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. And uh, all of his people who live on Beast Island, remarkably close to the terrifying concentration camp, <laughs> are uh, <laughs> captured and put there, surprising no one. And in order to uh, save his people, once again... Loki teams up with She-Ra and Co. And the sweetie of this episode is Lassie, uh, who's very flirtatious, but it doesn't actually turn into a love story. So I'm not sure why this episode is called what it's called. And we'll get to that, too. But yeah, that's basically it for two pretty simple episodes. But they're the only episodes in the series where Lookie plays a narrative role. And as I was um, explaining what we were doing to our guests, I said the episodes are kind of ciphers for the are into talking about uh, morals in the show. And they have some interesting ethical parts, especially the second one. Right. And how qualified Lookie is to be our like moral yeah. compass if he actually is a part of this universe that can take oh, a side. I think that's a great question. But first, let's introduce our guests. So we have with us here, I'm very embarrassed. I posted on Facebook, hey, does, is anyone like friends with an ethicist? Because I'd love to have an ethicist We live in the episode. future, and it was surprisingly effective. Time had been turned inside out. <laughs> yeah. And in a couple hours, my friend Russell, who I know through my old job uh, as manager of pastimes, messaged me and said, Yes, you know an ethicist, basically. And I was like, oh, yeah. So Russell hey, is a philosophy Tommy. professor uh, who specializes in both politics and ethics, making him kind of the perfect person for this show. So, Russell, can or you... Or the like, worst. Or Well, we'll see. Uh, can you give us a little bit of info on your background? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me here. This is um, a real pleasure for me. It's my first podcast, but also this sort of, this sort of work of looking at 
popular culture and looking at the way that it it influences structures and sheds light on important social political debates, ethical debates, things like that, I think is really important work. Um, so I have been at Elmhurst College here in the suburbs of Chicago since 2005, I believe. Um, I do teach a wide variety of classes. I won't go into them, but um, but ethics and social and political philosophy is certainly something that um, I do teach. Um, and at Elmhurst College, I am a professor of philosophy, and also I hold um, the Donald W. and Betty J. Buick Chair, um, which is something that is awarded to a member of a select number of departments for a certain period of time to look at social issues and things like that and to help the college to address them. So you actually do, um, this is a sidebar, but relevant to the larger point of our podcast, you do something with the inauguration every time, right? Like you take, I do. You take trips to the inauguration. I do. So I've been to the last three presidential inaugurations with a group of students. We do a, um, a program in Washington, D.C. with the Washington Center. Um, and we meet with, or we hear lectures from a wide variety of uh, political figures. Often we are the audience for various things on C-SPAN. Um, so I guess we are the complete audience for those things <laughs> on C-SPAN. And, and we also attend the inauguration. We often get to visit with senators and representatives and things like that. So yeah, yeah, every four years I've gone. Almighty Hornet, the supply ship from Hornworld has arrived. There's a package for you. I'll bring it to you right away. You ordered something from the Hort catalog? I have a little background before we get into the episodes, if I may. This comes from Lou Scheimer's autobiography. Of course, he is the head of Filmation, the executive producer. So according to Lou, and this could be apocryphal because this autobio isn't fact-checked, um, his daughter Erica was attending UCLA. Now, for like Fat Albert, they had employed uh, Dr. Gordon Berry, who was a UCLA education and psychology professor, to kind of help develop the show ethically. He was under contract to CBS because, as you may know, He-Man is the first um, direct-to-syndication show. So since it wasn't a network show, they couldn't use Dr. Barry. So Lou's daughter Erica is in a class at UCLA, and the, it's an education class, and the professor goes, I don't know why, he says most kids' TV is garbage except for PBS and Fat Albert. According to the autobio, <laughs> Erica goes up to the professor crying after the, show, uh, the lecture and says, did you mean that? And he said, yeah, of course. And she goes, my dad makes that show. And apparently from there, a beautiful friendship was born where this professor, Don Roberts, professor of education and children, uh, was contracted by Filmation for $13,000 a year to read every He-Man and She-Ra script and Literally, he could alter the scripts to make sure that the moral message uh, wasn't just tacked on, that it felt organic and like was displayed throughout the whole thing. Whether that was successful, that's what we're going to talk about. But that was uh, that's how this came about. So there literally is someone on staff whose only job it is is to integrate the moral messaging into the shows. That's uh, really interesting to know, because as you said already, you and I have been uh, sometimes very playfully critical of whether or not the message seems tacked on. Yeah. And I think if there was ever an opportunity to completely weave in the moral with the actual episode, it's including Lookie. Yeah. Lookie's always been this kind of outside third party. And I had a lot of questions about do these characters know he exists? Can they even see him? Is he real? And we get a lot of those answered. Uh, but also then, uh, and I want to talk about this, his sort of moral 
high road, his sort of uh, omnipotent understanding of morals is is torn asunder by these episodes. Right? Like what really threw me is when he sees the horde device and he recognizes it as a horde device and it clicked for me, wait a minute, Lookie knows about the war in this universe and he does nothing. <laughs> so, but, and so I'm so glad we watched Lookie Sweetie too, because we can contrast his kind of like literal moralizing from an, almost an ivory tower with the fact that his people are in this concentration camp sneaking the prisoners food and veggies, you know? Well, and the, the spooky thing about if he is our moral compass is that it's precisely a concealed moral compass, right? It's one that that haunts us, that that <laughs> follows us around, that could be around any bend, yeah. right? It's or or in the one of the episodes we saw, it's 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 behind that rock over there. Right? <laughs> that is right? spooky. Oh no! Yeah. Right? That he this is watching right now. That this is this this is this moral moral conscience that that could always be watching. Right, which is what we talk about when we talk about our voice of conscience and things like that. Let's talk about Lucky lends a hand first, then, just to be chronological. He, we find out he's aware of not only the war but the characters. Mm-hmm. He knows Bo, he knows Adora, he knows Glimmer, and he feels anguish when he sees them frozen. Yeah. Um, he is clearly taken aside on this one. He sees everyone in the woods being frozen as something that has to be undone and he's going to play an active role in it. So he's not uh, uh, just an ambiguous, like, moral deliverer anymore. He's playing a role in the war. And so I guess my question is, like, what, what is his ethical framework then? Is it, like, virtue? Is it greater good? What is, what is he basing his actions on when he decides to go get He-Man? It seems like if if I remember correctly from the episode, he his response to seeing everybody frozen is just, oh no, this is sort of unnatural. Which yes. is which goes along with the fact that it's it's in the woods as opposed you know, you're you're in this natural setting. This is this unnatural thing. And his response is, Well, this should be undone. I don't know that he gives it a kind of ethical import. Um not not that he doesn't have concern for those people who are caught because I, I think he does and he knows their names and things like that but then he goes for help right and this is this begins the kind of moral messaging that the that the end that the end of the show reinforces that's true so it, it and because he's a creature of the woods maybe his ethical impulse is really just to like restore what is natural and this is kind of the one time where only he can do it I do think that is valid because the first thing he's he notices is the leaves. The leaves are all right. frozen around oh, me, and that is point. unnatural. And I agree with that potential as an interpretation. But the person he goes to find, the person who helps him is Light Hope. But uh, Light Hope, in order to secure Lookie's help, gives Lookie Shira's secret identity. He just blows her cover. And He-Man's. Yes, and He-Man's just all in one go, which uh, as a viewer, A, I was not confident that that was necessary to make this happen because Loki already had his plan sort of in motion. And B, I think that does once again make me think we're trying to make Loki take a side. Because heaven forbid he's like true neutral or lawful neutral and then just goes and reveals all of this information to the horde. What I thought was really interesting was that Lookie knows enough about the world to um, 
or he doesn't know Adora's secret. Like, so he's clearly not omnipotent or omnipresent. Like, he there's still things that can surprise him, but he knows enough about relationships to understand once he knows Adora's secret that he can deduce Prince Adam's secret as well. Yeah, well, uh, that means he's also aware of the existence of Eternia. Right. Like, this is a deep rabbit hole that we could go really far down. Yeah. He doesn't know who She-Ra is, but he knows that there's, like, an alternate world out there. Right. <laughs> Come on, man. He doesn't... He arguably knows who Skeletor is, but only by reputation, seemingly. So, yeah, the limits of his knowledge are interesting. Speaking of Skeletor... So two things I loved about this episode. One, this episode was full of characters. Um, The whole He-Man cast is in it, but also in addition to the people I already mentioned, we have Madame Raz, we have Catra, and for a while I sort of thought it was weird how the Horde operated. They'd be like, this episode's about this one general and no one else is going to help them. And we really got to see a bunch of Hordesmen working together this time. And I also found this episode very funny. Uh Uh, Skeletor is quickly becoming my favorite thing. And when Loki kind of jets in there and and steals the use uh the one-off use of skeletor's portal the skeletor like what (laughs) that he releases is so funny and i think the humor is really well balanced in this one (laughs) i think he 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 needs a therapist desperately because and of course he's quick to blame it on beast man (laughs) right that that one of one of your one of your little guys beast man is responsible for this yeah that scene had me actually laughing out loud that was very funny it's just such a like neat fun cameo there's no menace in Skeletor at all he's just got this crazy plan that of course gets foiled you're right it's his lot in life I'll sneak into the prince's bedroom oh will you (laughs) while Hordak is like stopping time Skeletor's like I know bedrooms it's it it tells like a a really elaborate story with just a few moments Mm -hmm. that Skeletor is probably constantly making plans and trying to execute them and going nowhere. So like the episodes we get to see him in are, are only the ones where he's gotten any traction and he's probably just constantly spinning his wheels, getting no traction all the time. Uh, My favorite line maybe in the entire show was in this one too, which is just looking at you makes me suffer. (laughs) Yes, She-Ra's just getting sassier and sassier. She's turning into a real bitch, but like in a good way. (laughs) Skeletor! Boy, am I in the wrong place! Oh no! Now what do I do? I don't know how to find He-Man! One of your beasties, eh? No! Oh, where was I? (laughs) You were telling me how you planned to take the palace? Oh, yes. With this magic crystal, I can make a portal that will take me right into Prince Adam's bedroom. With him as my prisoner, King Randor will be forced to give me the palace. Prince Adam? That's him! There! Now stay away, Beastman! This portal can only be used once. What? See? There it went again. Imbecile! Your beastie has spoiled my plans! I'll get you for that, even if it's the last thing I do. I guess the story that I write for Loki now, because you said earlier he knows about the war, he can kind of just teleport wherever. He's present in every episode, and yet he, quote, does nothing. But I think we see in the next episode that that has a lot to do with 
his self-perceived weakness and the fear that he has. You can be apparently a magical creature in this universe and just be terrified of what's going on. Right. His, and his magic isn't powerful magic, which is kind of the moral of the first episode. Yeah, I was so, going to say, this seems like the, 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 the upshot of this first thing. And one of, one of the strange things, I think, Eric, you mentioned it before, is um, Loki is just sort of not quite the MacGuffin, but almost the reverse MacGuffin. He's just this thing that goes through a series of motions in order to knock the dominoes down in the right order to put time back into sync. Sure. Right? You know, Loki doesn't do anything except what he's told, other than go to Light Hope, right? Sure. And, and that turns out to be the moral of the story, that even though you're small, you ought to go to somebody, somebody bigger and get help. Hi, today I know you found me, because I was part of a story. You know, none of us have powers like She-Ra and He-Man, but we can still do lots of things that are helpful to others. I'm not very strong, and my magic is just for hiding, but I help She-Ra and He-Man today. Size is not the true measure of one's worth. Little people like you and me can do big things, so don't let being little keep you from being helpful. I thought the, 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 the moral message, right, that, that you're small, but you can still go get help, right, was, was very, a very strange message to be broadcasting in the mid-'80s, right? We have the savings and loan crisis. We have, we have the, the coming of the Iran-Contra affair. We have government is the problem, not the solution. We have any number of widely widely disseminated ideas um, promoting a kind of, um, Eric, I think you said in a conversation earlier, rugged individualism. And this, this episode seems to say, go get help from somebody, from somebody strong, from somebody grown up or something like that. As though, and we also, I, I should add, I just thought of this, we're also living at the time of Tipper Gore and the idea that there are these satanic cults that are murdering children. I mean, this was a real, a real epidemic and things like that that was, that was debunked in the early 90s. And so this, this moral idea of go get help from somebody stronger, I feel like is really belied by a lot of the, a lot of the events going on in the world at the same time, right? Go get help from, from somebody stronger are you sure you're going to get that help? And that might go back to, to what sort of what sort of being is Loki. So I completely agree with the strangeness of it, given the historical context. I do try to like remind myself that this show was made for small children and their universe is probably just like the playground or their home. But I also got a slightly different message out of the moral, which was less go get help and more... Something we've talked about on this show before, which is you have a special skill that is still useful and still can be helpful. He might have just lucked into it. I mean, he was literally sleeping in a tree when all of this went down. But the point is he didn't hide today. He did something else. And you could you could choose to not hide once in a while. And you could choose to, even if you have doubt inside of yourself, you're like, I'm not 
strong enough like He-Man that I can rip time apart. I can still do something. But I still have value. I thought that was in what Eric just read. That was something I had forgotten about, that he sort of declares, even though you're small, you're still valuable, right? There's something special about you. And it's funny, though, what you're saying, Russell, because Lauren and I always get on Loki for like his number one moral message is like, tell your your parents. parents. Yeah. And kind of he goes to the show's parents. He goes to Daddy He-Man and says, hey, fix this. I have one question before we, we move to the next one, which is, uh, do you guys think kids' minds were blown when they saw Lucky in the story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to put myself in that position as a kid, and I decided that child Lauren would think this was the coolest thing she'd ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if child Russ wouldn't have, wouldn't have said, oh, thank God, it's finally an episode where I found him. <laughs> <laughs> Today I know you found me. Today I know you found me. Today I know you found me. Lauren, you were about to ask, how do you think characters in this universe view Lucky now that they know he's, like, out there? And I think Lucky Sweetie kind of starts to address that a little bit. It does. He's hanging out with the team now. The episode opens with Adora basically having a fun girl time camp out, making a zigzag hot dog. Yeah. Uh, And Lucky just shows up. He's apparently reaching out to the Rebellion and our named characters now and just being a part of their lives. Yeah, and, and Ordora's just kind of like, oh, Lucky, you took my hot dog. I'm sorry, my... Um, Thermo Frank. Thermo Frank. But Lucky, sweetie, I think uh, kind of, to me, unlike Lucky lends a hand, not that, not that there's not no moral in that, but I think it's a little uh, plainer. There's some kind of interesting dilemmas in Lucky, sweetie. There's mm-hmm. two in particular. I want to start by uh, with the smaller one, which is, Lauren, I know you wanted to do a nutrition episode. Turns out this could have been it. <laughs> Because the reason that Lucky's people, the Conceals, are captured is because they are smuggling fresh... They make a point to say fresh fruit and vegetables to, to the prisoners. To keep them healthy. Yeah. This episode, twice, and we'll get to the other one, was very heavy-handed with the morals. Yeah. Extraordinarily heavy-handed. But I thought that was so interesting because some news that broke this week, which you'll probably be hearing this in about three or four weeks, is uh, Trump's SNAP plan which is basically replacing food stamps with um, they're kind of shittily calling it like a blue apron for people who need aid. But there's no fruits or vegetables in the boxes. There will be a canned fruits and vegetables, which are notoriously bad for people because they're often floating in sugary Sugar syrup yeah. or preserved in a way that just eliminate some of the benefits of the vitamins in, and minerals in fresh food. Yeah. And note that they treat they treat their recipients as kind of virtual prisoners, right? We're not going to trust you to go out and buy yes. food that's um, nutritious and that you would like to eat. We're going to force feed you. Right. And this plan has so many questions that have not been answered, which I think is very typical of when Donald Trump announces an idea. There's, it's just never fleshed out in any way. You know, what if someone doesn't have an address? What if someone has food allergies? Uh, what if they live in an area where the cost of living is higher? Does the food amount they get change? What are the caloric restrictions put on these people? What if they have cultural differences and you're feeding them food that they've never tried before? Well, it turns out they shouldn't be poor, Lauren, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know. my my argument this entire time for anyone who thinks like, great, I think it's completely reasonable that we dictate what strangers are eating is why don't we attack the 1% with this same level of judgment for how mm-hmm. they spend their money? You know, you're, if you're going to say 
someone in poverty shouldn't waste their money on chips and soda. Chips and soda do the same thing to a poor person's body as a rich person's body. And furthermore, why does a rich person need a 12th car? Do they really need a fourth vacation home? What a lazy waste. Does Jeff Bezos need to be the richest man in history and yet he can't pay his employees a living wage all the time? Womp, that's womp. A, you know That's a different topic, but it's all tied up. The the point about do you really need a twelfth car? Do you really need a tw- you know an eighth house? Do you need a fourteenth bedroom? Things like that. I think ties in with the second moral moment of this episode. Yes, yes it does. Which is, is it ever right to steal? This was strange. I feel like if if the um, educational consultant Don Roberts had got his hand on the script, he probably shoehorned in this scene because it felt like not a part of the rest of the episode. And I also think the show didn't give it nearly the the ethical consideration it deserved. So essentially, Shira and Lassie, uh, Lassie, I hate that name, fall into the slime pit and it steals their strength and they can't get out. And Lookie is free, but he can't pull them out because he's a tiny guy. And then there's this like cartoon. Mr. Mr. Pig, right? Yeah, like I think they call him Slime Pig. He kind of looks like he was on Garfield and Friends. Well, and of course, he's the symbol of gluttony and waste and laziness. Yeah, so there's this pig who lives in the slime pit who he kind of talks like a Brooklyn comedian uh, or like a ethnic stereotype, depending on what way you want to take that. And looks like a bureaucrat. Yes, and he apparently, he lives in the slime, but he also has a vial of substance that will dissolve the slime. For some reason, why? Yes, and apparently also this is a horde trap, so either they put him there on purpose or they're just okay with him being there and having that. Yeah, I got the impression that he was just kind of a someone who they don't mind having there. He's not harming anyone. Yeah. There was a moral that I feel like we missed there or the show missed to be more accurate. You know, one person's trash is another man's treasure sure. or like one person's dump is another person's home. I think we could have given this guy a lot more credit for how happy he is exactly where he's at. Yeah. But instead what we get is like he shows Adora the vial or Shira the vial. And he's like, well, but I don't want to give it to you because I love the slime. But Lucky sees it and like attacks him and steals the vial. And then Shira goes, that's great, Lucky. Give it back. You can never steal, basically. is like, it's not right to take what doesn't belong to you. And so Lucky's like, all right, I guess you're right. Gives it back to the slime pig. And then the slime pig goes, well, since you were nice to me, I'll free you. I think that it's very, <laughs> it's very important to tackle the moral language in this episode because not only did we say we brought them fresh fruits and vegetables to keep them healthy but Loki also apologizes in that same robotic way and he says I am sorry I tried to steal your property Mm. it's so clearly the lesson that they want kids taking from this that it's said as if it's from like a kid's third grade textbook I mean this is kind of an ethics 101 issue that they're that they're dealing with and and I, it really did feel sort of shoehorned in to this episode that this is this is going to be the central conflict. I mean, we have all sorts of strange Rube Goldberg kind of things going on on this island of monsters with floating freeze rays and things like that. There's a lot to notice going on in the background, and yet you're kind of riveted to this exchange over over that vial. I mean, as I was watching it, I had no inkling that what was going to result from this was, all right, first, Lucky wins the fight with the pig and then is told, give it back. 
right? It's, yeah. it's just like, well, wait a minute. Like, isn't the whole project here we're trying to free prisoners? And now all of a sudden, no, wait, we need to take a few minutes and, and learn some moral lessons here. Right. So Shira is, I think, generally good at reminding people you have to separate yourself from the, the tactics and the attitudes of evil. And I think it is in line with her character to say, we're not going to steal because stealing makes you like the horde. You know, that's a horde kind of tactic, in my opinion. However, I do think there is something to the greater good. Right. You know, like, I think there could have been a scenario in which we just explained ourselves. We need this thing to free, like, 30 prisoners. Will you help us free 30 prisoners? Or something, you know. An appeal to a kind of universal rationality. Right? Yeah. And if this if 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 pig just understands and that what could awaken doing. some some moral compass in the pig as well i think the line that eric already said which was because you were nice i'll give it to you is crap right. he was physically assaulted they were not nice no shira shira like, was nice she was but like Looky was treated him very badly, and he had no motivation to give them this slime-destroying serum. No, there were other ways to have, I think, navigated that situation to the same result that maybe would have been stronger morally. The thing that immediately occurred to me when I saw this, when I saw that scene was, oh, this is Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. So Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher, end of the 18th century, and he is famous in morals and ethics classes for being incredibly difficult to understand and to read, universally despised by undergraduates. Uh, but he, but his one of the formulations of the categorical imperative is act always and only in such a way as you would will the maxim of your action as a universal law. So you can see why he's universally hated. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what he means by that is that you should be able, any any action that you undertake, your reason for doing it, you should be able to say this is always and everywhere right. And that's why something like theft would be a violation of the categorical imperative, right? But prior to Immanuel Kant, there'd been a philosopher, John Locke, who had talked explicitly about property, and he talked about property in a way that he said something becomes property when it is labored upon, when it is produced by human labor. So an apple hanging on a tree is not property. If I pluck that apple from the tree, it becomes my property. And if, if I grow that apple tree, that apple tree is, again, the fruits of my labor, it is my property. If I till, the, till this field, it is my property. If I just look out at it and say that's mine, no, not mine. So the the interesting thing is that Locke is 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 bases this on the idea that the earth is given to human beings to labor upon by God, and it's meant to be made fruitful for human beings, which poses a particular problem for those people with that twelfth car, that fourteenth house, two yachts, etc., namely waste. Yeah. And Locke at one point talks about, suppose there's a famine and somebody has a silo full of grain that belongs solely to them that will spoil. It will go to waste. Do the people who are starving have a right to it? And they do, if they can convert it into something fruitful that will allow for human flourishing. 
So this this idea about is it ever right to steal? I mean, this is the, this is a very central debate in ethics. This idea of is there this kind of one rational law by which we all have to act? Which I think to some extent this episode also reinforces, or is it sometimes perfectly appropriate to steal? I guess it does. What I'm what I'm noodling over now that you've said all this is. It depends on if an individual character is motivated by exclusively themselves or a greater good. And we went in this scene with kind of an exclusively the self because the pig said, you were nice to me, now I'll be nice to you. And no societal or group motivation was taken into account. The version that I sort of propose, which is we tell him about these prisoners, would appeal to that other type. Like, oh, well, there's a society Mm -hmm. that needs your contribution. And we didn't do that. We went with a more individualized morality. Which is, oddly enough, is the third formulation of Kant's categorical imperative, is that we ought to endeavor to live in a kingdom of ends. Which is this idea, I think, using, using your formulation, that... If we could speak to each other and allow each other to understand the reasons for our actions, there would be a kind of universal consensus to what we all ought to be doing. In other words, the pig and Lucky are only they they misunderstand each other. And if they just had if they just kind of came clean with each other at the very beginning of it, right? Because Mr. Pig gets his slime back at the end. It's right. not like, you know, it's it's not like the slime dissolving substance eliminates it permanently. It's not a finite resource, yeah. Right. Then then it seems like every the, you know, the 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 what seems like a very a very serious conflict is just dissolved. It's yeah. like, here, we'll get rid of this slime, I'll get some more, you'll get your prisoners out, everybody's happy. I'll complicate this just a tad because I agree with you. Kant both. is not complicated <laughs> at all. So I think it's good yeah. to get some complication. <laughs> good. Uh, I agree with you both that this is a, a kind of a missed opportunity and the episode comes down too hard on uh, on just incorrect ethics when like there's there's an easier fix for it. But I wonder if what Russell said about making the pig look like this kind of like 80s corporate greed fat cat doesn't play into the fact that he is won over by appealing to his own greed. Like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do I think that's what the writers intended? No, but it occurs to me now that that is the a The optics are reading. kind of there. Yeah. I will go back to one of my mainstays in this show, which is, again, remember that it's for kids. Yeah. And maybe the thing that justifies this scene being what it is, is that the simplicity of be nice to someone else is for children and easy enough for them to understand. If I'm on the playground and there's one kid who's being a jerk, I can be nice to that one kid. I'm not necessarily thinking about the good of the playground yeah. when I'm in kindergarten. Look, I got it! I got the liquid that will free you! Great, Lookie! Now give it back! Huh? Yeah! The liquid belongs to Slime Pig, Lookie. It's not right to steal, even to set us free. I'm afraid Sierra's right, Lucky. Give Slime Pig his liquid back. Well, I, I guess you're right. Here, I'm sorry I tried to steal your property. Uh, oh, gee. Ah, uh, what the heck? Since you were nice to me, hey, I'll be nice to you. In general, what do you think of the the efficacy of, like, this moral segment at the end of the show 
And do you find that including the moral character in the narrative helps or hinders or is a zero sum in that regard? There was a there was a strong difference between the moral messaging between these two two episodes. The first one, um, the one with the the time machine, I thought it was it was much less clear what the what the central moral message was. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, when when Lookie comes on and says the central moral message is you're special even though you're small so there's there's the appeal to the children and if you find yourself in difficulty remember you can go to people who are bigger and have more have more power than you and you can get good things done um i i recognize that as as to some extent having been conveyed by the by the episode but but certainly that that was sharpening a much duller point than the second one yes the second one, I felt uh, so. So this is the one with with Mr. Pig. I felt like you didn't need a wrap up if you, if you missed the the kind of e- even a even a young child if they're capable of following the narrative. If you missed the the kind of moral lesson giving of the slime pit, um, I'm not sure that the the end the 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 wrap up would have given you anything else other than just this don't steal don't yeah. steal don't steal which you know again in the late eighties is a is a remarkably um, discordant message to be giving um, given the amount of stealing that was going the on the age of excess yes yeah and I think Thank this you, Ronnie. I think this goes back to the point about um, what was the what was the initial problem with the conceals was that they were smuggling fresh fruit and vegetables to prisoners. This episode would have ruined Loki's credibility for me permanently. The idea that he would come at the end of the episode and go, today I learned not to steal. I'd be like, wait just one freaking second. You're not an expert in morality or what it is to be a good dude at all. I'm never going to believe you again. So that uh, would have been my ethical takeaway had I watched this when I was like eight. How do we think morals will show up in the new show? My guess is that if if they do end of show morals, like pointed, here is the lesson, which I don't think they will. It would only be for nostalgic purposes. Right. My guess is that they're not going to have the after school special moral at the end. Yeah. But I would bet the show tries to teach our young people a lot of progressive lessons. If you're looking at Adventure Time, if you're looking at Steven Universe, that's sort of even My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, the stuff that's out there right now, I think is doing a great job teaching kids some advanced things about being humans in society. Well, in cartoons and movie on the days when they felt like like Lou Scheimer did that they needed to justify their existence by putting a commercial or by putting a moral at the end. Now storytelling for kids is just accepted to be a little more sophisticated but valuable. So do you think that Lookie will be in the new show? Mm. I wonder if they'll hide him just for fun, like the background artist may sneak him in. If he's in it, I bet he's in it like one episode. He's drawn in the background as an Easter egg, you know? Yeah. I just want to point out that we're we're recording this on the weekend that Black Panther released. True. And so we, we, we've talked a lot about the ethics, but not the social and political dynamics of these shows and things like that. And in you know, in addition to the Me Too movement and things like that, Black Panther opening this weekend, I think, may hopefully turn out to be a really significant moment where you don't... Now, I haven't seen the movie, but my understanding is that it doesn't end, and then you're told, here's the moral of this movie that you've just seen, right? It ends right. with Easter eggs for other Avengers things and stuff like that. But but having having the ability to 
tell a progressive story without having to point to the progressive message might be an, might be an interesting change from when She-Ra was originally made. We usually end with our own moral segment, but since we talked about morals the whole episode, I don't think we need to. I do want to toss this question out there, though. As a teacher of college students, granted, but what is the most effective way to impart uh, ethics to young minds? You're asking me that? Yeah, or oh, and Lauren well, as well. Well I'm, well, I'm completely unqualified to answer that, <laughs> but I would say that the more that you can integrate a moral lesson into the student's story. Students, students will ask questions about, about ethical, moral, social, and political um, issues, not just out of, you know, out of a need to talk, but because it matters to them, mm. right? Yeah. And I think that the more that, that I am able as, a, as an instructor to take what they're asking me and to make clear to them that it matters what the answer is, that it's not just you need to learn this for the test. That to me, and that maybe that's why I've been so interested in the, in the fact that you know, one, of these, one of these episodes that we watched clearly did not need a sort of summing up. Yeah. I think that's the best way of instruction. I remember one time teaching Aristotle and one of my students made a bracelet that um, said WWAD, right? What would <laughs> Aristotle do? And whenever, whenever she found herself thinking about um, what she might do, and if it had some sort of moral or ethical question, she would sort of snap it against her wrist. Mm. But, um, but just that ability to expand and diversify the questions and concerns you're able to bring to moral behavior. For me, I think it's media. I, I think this is a really solid button on our show yeah. because we are currently in a week where we are not only talking about these snap boxes and marginalizing the poor, but there was also yet another tragic school shooting, and we're talking about defending guns over children and marginalizing the mentally ill. But it's also, as you said, the week Black Panther came out, and Black Panther as a superhero who looks like and delivers the messages of oppressed populations is going to inspire the smallest people at that movie to treat others a different and better way. And so if it's not our generation, it's the kids who get to see King T'Challa and in Wakanda as a normal thing. I think that's a really important point, that, that Black Panther ceases to become this exception yeah. but becomes just another well-made movie. Yeah, so I can be devastatingly sad sitting in this chair thinking about 17 more people killed by guns, but also I can be happy thinking those kids have a role model that's Black Panther, and maybe they'll save us all. And so, hey, new She-Ra, too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. We wanted to make sure we spread the signal for March for Our Lives, a gigantic protest against gun violence happening around the world on Saturday, March 24th. There are 841 different events happening worldwide, including 10 around Chicago. The Chicago City March starts at Union Park at 11 a.m. tomorrow. 
If you know where Pitchfork is, you know where the march is. Uh, for more information or to donate to a really important cause, go to www.marchforourlives.com. For-